DiscerningHearts.com presents Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors. I'm your host, Chris McGregor, and I'm delighted to be joined by Vivian Dudreau, who is an editor for Ignatius Press. Over the last 30 years, she's written news articles, book reviews, and columns for various Catholic media, including the National Catholic Register. Vivian joins me to discuss the work of Gertrude von Lefort, who was a German novelist and essayist. A convert to Catholicism, she was a prolific writer whose poetry and novels, which have been translated into many languages, won her acclaim throughout Europe. With Vivian Dudreau, we go inside the pages of Gertrude von Lefort's Song at the Scaffold, published by Ignatius Press. Set during the French Revolution, The Song and the Scaffold is a classic novella which is based on the true story of the Carmelite nuns of Capienne, who offered their lives for the preservation of the church in France. The story unfolds around the fictional character of Blanche de la Force, an excessively fearful aristocrat who enters the Carmelite convent in order to flee the dangers of the world. As the reign of terror begins, Blanche is no safer in the convent than in the streets of Paris, and some of the sisters begin to doubt her ability to endure persecution and possibly martyrdom. The fates of Blanche and the other Carmelites take several unexpected turns, leaving the reader with an inspiring witness not only of martyrdom, but of God's power being glorified in human weakness. We now begin our discussion with Vivian Dudreau of Gertrude von Lefort's The Song at the Scaffold. Vivian, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It is a gem that Ignatius Press has brought forward to us in the work of Gertrude von Lefort in The Song at the Scaffold. Tell us why this book is so important. Well, it's important for a number of reasons. It's set, as you know, during the French Revolution. In the moment in which we are now living with, we're seeing that population can become enraged by perceived injustices and rise up in anger and fury. And of course, when that gets unleashed, the innocent also suffer with the guilty. Gertrude von Lefort saw the French Revolution as time of tremendous upheaval, but when the powers that be were attacked, the church was attacked with it. And so she sets this story uh, during the Reign of Terror, and it's based on the true account of 16 Carmelite nuns who were martyred at the guillotine. What was so interesting about these women is that they had actually offered their lives as an oblation for the sake of the Church in France and to end the Reign of Terror. And the Reign of Terror ended not too long after they were killed. She took this amazing cataclysmic historical moment and chose it as an opportunity to look at what is holiness and what is abandonment to God. What does that look like? Yeah, the sacrifice of the lives, that that true martyrdom, the witness of the sisters in the Carmel during that period, I mean, has been translated into operas. Uh, well, Gertrude von Lefort, as you know, was German. It's, mm-hmm. it's a French last name, but she was a, from a German aristocratic family. But her story being set in France, it must have attracted the attention of of French Catholic intellectuals. And so George Bernanos turned it into a story, and then Poulenc turned it into an opera under the title The Dialogues of the Carmelites. 
Both works are very moving, and Bernanos helped write the opera. The Dialogue of the Carmelites, which is the title of the opera, is one of the most moving operas I've ever watched, especially the last scene. But what Gertrude has done with this book, The Song at the Scaffold, I think has captured that same emotion. And tell us first about her life. What do we know about her? She was born into a noble uh, Prussian family. She was given a very broad education. She was educated at two universities, Heidelberg and uh, Berlin. She studied history, theology, philosophy. She was a very educated woman. She was a poet. She's considered one of the greatest contemporary transcendent poets, meaning, you know, someone who writes about things beyond the intellect, the things of God, the things of spirit, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So her poetry was very acclaimed in her day. Americans are less familiar with it because it's very difficult to translate poetry from a foreign language and retain its Mm -hmm. fullness. But in any case, she converted to Catholicism in 1926, I'm sure that caused a great scandal in her family and in, among intellectuals and so forth to become a Catholic. But she did win the admiration of Hermann Hesse, a great German novelist, a contemporary of hers, and he nominated her for the Nobel Prize. Wow. So she was highly acclaimed in her own time and day for the works that she produced. She wrote more than 20 books, poems, novels, short stories and also theological, philosophical sorts of essays. Ignatius Press also publishes her Eternal Woman, which is a nonfiction work on the meaning of the feminine. So she really had a tremendous breadth and depth and intellect and spirit together, which is a formidable combination. The fact that she would be the author of this work of The Song at the Scaffold, but also of that wonderful nonfiction work you just mentioned, The Eternal Woman, which I think is an invaluable read for folks, Timeless Meaning of the Feminine. This is at the same time that Edith Stein is living. And she too would be touched by the Carmelite spirit in such a way. I mean, this great philosopher who brought up about what is the true uh, feminine in in our nature, that maternal nurture, and she would become a Carmelite who would end up herself becoming a martyr to the faith in a great reign right. of terror. And as you know, Edith Stein, uh, like those Carmelites during the reign of terror in France, Edith Stein offered her life for the sake of her people. As you know, she was a Jew who converted to Catholicism as a philosophy student one of her professors was a, was a believing Catholic and made a great impression on her. And then she read the life of St. Teresa of Avila. Yes, it's interesting how you bring up Edith Stein being contemporary. And all of these women, as you know, had a profound impact on Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. And you will see in the writings of, you will see echoes from Lafort, from Edith Stein, in his document on women, Mulieris Dignitatum. Mm-hmm. His understanding that every woman is ultimately a mother, whether she becomes a physical, biological mother, or whether she becomes a spiritual mother in a single state, a consecrated state, and what have you. He understood profoundly that the meaning of the feminine is motherhood. And this is the kernel, 
when he talks about the feminine genius and so forth in Mulieris Dignitatum, it's these women who sort of worked that out in art and in essay writing, that profound truth that the Holy Father ends up putting in his document on women. Mm. Isn't that something? It, it is such a powerful work, the song at the scaffold, that could miss it. Really, it's not a big work. It's not a long Tolstoy type of novel. No, it, not at all. In fact, it's called a novella for a reason. It's it's the petite form of a novel. It's only, uh, you know, it's less than 100 pages. Mm-hmm. She does a lot with a little. <laughs> she does, and particularly with a fictional character of Blanche. Tell us about Blanche. Well, Blanche is a fictional character. She's the main character. The other main characters are all historical people. And Blanche is what what Von Lafort is doing. If you notice, Blanche uh, de la Force mm-hmm. and Gertrude Von Lafort, you wonder if this similarity in the names is, is something that Gertrude is saying about herself. I don't know, uh, mm-hmm. but it is, an, it is an interesting coincidence. But in any case, Blanche, in, in writing about, in creating this character, she is creating a person whose fear ends up having a religious significance. The woman enters a convent because she is exceedingly fearful, uh, obsessively fearful, and has been ever since her birth. I, I believe her mother dies in childbirth, and, mm-hmm. and the girl from early on is, is excessively fearful. And she enters religious life in order to try to conquer this weakness of hers. What ends up happening is the French Revolution unfolds, and it becomes clear that the church is going to be uh, suffering persecution and so forth. The other nuns in the Carmel start to question whether or not this young woman is going to be strong enough to face persecution and possibly martyrdom. And so what Gertrude von Lefort does with this character is shows us that Whatever it is that we're going to face in life, if we're going to have the strength to do it, it's not going to come from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that we have to overcome weakness in order to be strong, she's understanding this as a different movement, that we have to allow our weakness to let God be strong in us and through us and thereby give glory to God. And so this profound understanding is something that's so important for Christians today, particularly in a society that is so success-oriented, so, you know, get-your-act-together-oriented, so just get the book, read the book, fix your life, and get on with your life-oriented. And Gertrude von Lefort is saying something very different about the role of weakness in our life, that it's an opening for God. Mm-hmm. And she can speak to this because she lived through one of the most tumultuous centuries in human history. Of course, yes, the 20th and in century. Europe, besides two world wars and uh, the rise of these uh, horrible anti-human ideologies, communism, Nazism, all of this taking place in her own country, Germany. Yes, she, I'm sure, saw her fair share of of suffering and desolation and 
and and here, you know, the 20th century is marked by such technological progress. Supposedly, mankind is just going to solve all of his problems with better and better technology and science and so forth. And what what do we do? We kill each other. Mm-hmm. We kill each other more efficiently with with all of our knowledge. So clearly, human knowledge, human strength is it is not what saves us. Mm-hmm. It has limits. And I think in this character of, of Blanche, Gertrude von Lefort is showing us that limits are not something to be held in contempt, but are something to be to be our means by which we go to God and allow him to work in our life. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I think when I read it, I was Blanche. And I think any woman that reads it, any person, any man or woman who reads it, they become that character. What would we do faced with such fear? And I think that's, don't we, Vivian, in today's climate, or really feel this underlying sense of fear? It's been magnified in, in what we're going through right now in our country with with a weakened economy and with feeling more vulnerable vis-a-vis uh, uh, foreign conflicts and foreign enemies. And so I think fear and and worry is are, are both plaguing a, a lot of people. And one thing about this understanding of the feminine that Gertrude von Lefort understood is that even though the woman is physically more vulnerable than the man, so she experiences this vulnerability in a more profound way. But all human beings, compared to the things that we're up against in life, right? Mm-hmm. We all are vulnerable, right? So even though the woman is a sign of this, she represents more than herself. You know, this is not a story about women, you see. This is a story about what it means to be human, what it means to be weak. It, it's a human problem, not a female problem. You see what I mean? Even though the woman becomes the sign and so the soul before God, any human being before God, we all go before God, weak and naked and pretty pathetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and sometimes the things that we're up against seem pretty huge and and likely to crush us. And so where are we going to get the strength to face whatever gets put in front of us in life? Where is that strength going to come from? That's the question. That's the question. That, that's, that's the question we all face. Well, I think that's what's beautiful about what happens with Blanche and these sisters, these Carmelite sisters during the French Terror, is that they surrender. And they surrender in that act, as you wonderfully put it earlier, of reparation. That's also emulating their spouse, their brides of Christ. They looked at their spouse who did the same on the cross. Right. You know, we as Christians mark ourselves with that cross. As Catholics in particular, we have that crucifix to remind us that's where the strength and the courage comes from in surrendering and allowing our weakness to be able to be used by him. 
by God. And this is the beautiful thing about the cross and the life of the Christian, is that suffering is not meaningless. You know, human beings are going to suffer. Whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever your walk of life, whatever you've got going for you, you're not going to escape suffering in this world. So that can be a source of misery and despair, or you can look at the cross and see that it's through suffering that we receive life. And so, and not only for ourselves, when Christ suffered, he brought life to all. So our suffering now has incredible meaning. It isn't just a, a, a you know, a meaningless, pointless exercise that is, you know, the sooner it's over with, the better. Mm-hmm. And this is, this view toward human suffering is the very thing at the heart of what Pope John Paul II called the culture of death. You know, we, mm-hmm. we think that the solution to suffering is death. Death at our own hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not, not the death right. that God chooses for us, but death at our own hands. And so what we look, when we look at the cross, what we see is no suffering and the death that God allows in His own way, in His own will, His will be done, not ours. It's through that that we redeem ourselves and not just ourselves, but that our redemptive suffering has the power to give grace to others. And of course, the life of the Carmelite is a life of redemptive suffering. Mm-hmm. They choose a life of very severe penance, uh, willingly and voluntarily to do reparation for sin, not just their own, but the sins of others. And so this, this calling um, is seen in the, in the martyrdom of the Carmelites. Their calling that they chose from the very beginning is only brought to flower. I mean, that's really what they, what they chose from the beginning, right? There's a beautiful film out right now, or it's probably no longer in theaters, but of Gods and Men. Did you see it? Mm-hmm. That's stunning. Just about the beautiful. French, about the French monks who are killed by the, um, Islamic militant group, terrorist group. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the men, are, the men are all realizing they're going to be killed most likely, and they're trying to come to terms with this. And there's this beautiful scene where the, abbot of the monastery says to one of the men, when you gave your life to Christ, you already died to this world. You already agreed to suffer with him mm-hmm. in this redemptive way. You chose that when you became a monk. It was, but when you think about it, we choose this when we become Christians. That's right. Whether we're monks or nuns or priests or married men and women, whatever, when we choose Christ, when we choose to, we choose to die with Him in order to rise with Him. Mm-hmm. That's what we choose when we say we're Christians. And, and it's not as though we're going running after suffering. Let's just run after it. Let's go fight all the suffering That's we can. Right. No, that would be nope. masochism. But what we do do is we abandon ourselves to the will of God in our lives. And when suffering comes, which it surely will and surely does for everyone, mm-hmm. We can participate with Christ in that and have this be a force of redemption and new life in our lives and in the lives of others. We'll return to Inside the Pages in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app 
in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming, Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Litany of Humility O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being calumniated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. That others may be loved more than I, that others may be esteemed more than I, that in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, that others may be chosen and I set aside, that others may be praised and I unnoticed, that others may be preferred to me in everything, that others may become holier than I, provided that I become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Inside the Pages. Blanche, when she goes in to the Carmel, she's really struggling. She doesn't think she can do it. She doesn't think she can enter into the practice 
or even to really live out the faith. I mean, that's ultimately the struggle. And isn't that how we are? We go to Mass on Sundays. We hear the message. We hope we can do it. But can we really love our neighbor? Can we really forgive the person that has hurt us? Can we really do all those things? No, we can't. With our human ability alone, we can't. Mm -hmm. And Blanche, when she, she knows she can't. And at first, you know, when she first enters the convent, they're all trying to come up with this sort of program to help Blanche overcome her fear. And the mother superior ends up with the wisdom that maybe she's not supposed to just like strive to overcome it. Maybe she's supposed to be receptive to something in it. Mm-hmm. And the mother superior ends up with this insight, whereas uh, another character in the story who's sort of the foil to Blanche, she's one of the, you know, just naturally gifted, able, competent, strong kinds of a kind of woman, which there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm certainly not going to say, you know, that we're supposed to just wallow in our weakness. No, but to see, to see that, to see that it's, ultimately a gift mm-hmm. in whatever form infirmity takes in our lives. You know, for some people, they literally are on a sick bed. Mm-hmm. And for others, their sickness is in their, their minds and their spirits and their, you know, they're plagued by fear and anxiety and whatever it might be, whatever way infirmity comes to us, to be able to See that as the opportunity for God's grace to work in our life. Mm-hmm. And therefore, not fear it in anticipation. So much of our worry and, and, and fear comes from anticipating what could happen, right. you know? Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Before it even does, you know, we're already a wreck. Yeah. And to, to, to try to just have that trust in God that he knows what he's about. He's made us. He has a plan for us. He loves us. And whatever comes to us in life, he's ready to walk with us in it and through it and bring us to the other side. Bring us to the other side, glorified, purified. This is what being a Christian means. Mm-hmm. And even that Mother Superior's insight into what Blanche needs to do gives the grace and the strength for them to be able to face the most fearsome of sacrifices. That's the whole community of sisters. And in that real life, embrace of the cross and to witness to a world gone mad. I mean, right, and this to a is world a d- gone completely. I mean, she does such a good job of describing the complete debauchery of the masses that, I mean, you know, drinking the blood and dancing in it and, 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 you know, that this, this complete love affair with murder and death and blood that France has descended into, you know, who wouldn't be just, they don't call it the reign of terror for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would right. be completely terrified out of your wits if you did not have a belief in a God who loves you and who's going to be loving you, even if this is what you must face. And the, the sad part is, is that actually happened. I mean, that was it, it, what she's pulling from is factual evidence of what occurred during that period. And can man be that bad? 
Can we descend into that kind of madness? Yes. We did it again a hundred years later where we sent women and children as well as men into ovens. Right. Into the, it, that's right. The Holocaust was, was, uh, and of course there are Holocausts all over the globe, all over history of, you know, the, the massacre in Rwanda, the massacre in Cambodia, the, the gulags of Soviet, uh, communism. You know, that, that, that what man is capable of doing to his fellow man. Oh, and, and Vivian, I would even insert what we do on the corner and a street where in any town in the United States at a Planned Parenthood or an abortion facility. When you think about yes. that type of horror. It know. is a horror. And how the fact that it's unseen doesn't make it any less so. Right. But not to so much dwell on the negative, but to look, but to dwell in the hope. And I think that's what Gertrude von Lefort has done with this particular work is that ultimately with great works of fiction but also great works of christian fiction as this is this is a classic it points you to heaven doesn't it it gives you hope it gives you hope it gives you hope that first of all it gives you hope that even in the midst of tremendous horror that the human person with the grace of god is capable of a beautiful act. And that capacity for for goodness in the face of such evil, that gives you hope. Wow. I might we sometimes think, what would I have done if I were in that situation? Would I have been able to do that? Well, the beauty of this kind of hope is that you don't have to rely on yourself to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Trust that you'll be given the grace for whatever it is you might encounter in your life. And so that gives you hope that, okay, I'll have the grace too. That no matter what my next moment's going to bring me, I'll have the grace for it. And then the hope of there's something beyond this world. This world is not the last word. Mm-hmm. There's something beyond this world that we, that we hope for, that, that will be a place where there will be no more evil and pain and crying and lamenting and so forth that, that is the life that we hope for, and that is the life that we believe redemptive suffering can take us to. Mm. And tremendous, again, I keep using that word, but I don't know how else to describe it, the song at the scaffold and the work of Gertrude von Lefort. It, Vivian, I would just want to lift up also how beautiful the writing is. I mean, yes, she's well, a uh, beautiful uh, writer. She is well. She is a she is a poet, mm. so her her writing soars at a level of beauty that we're also hungry for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we're in the blog sphere and everything. There's a lot of words, but they aren't always they aren't always worth reading. No, but uh, she she is truly a fine writer, a poet, a visionary, a prophet. She's well worth reading, and you know, hopefully, we we can bring more of her works into print, back into print. As you just said, there's writing, and then there's art, and in this case, I'd say this is sacred art. Yes, I would agree with you, Vivian. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. With Vivian Dudrow, we've gone inside the pages of Gertrude von Lefort's. 
Song at the Scaffold. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Inside the Pages, insights from today's most compelling authors.